You can take your Bibles, turn along with me to Matthew chapter 6. So we continue our study in the Lord's Prayer. It's important to put first things first. You've got to plant before you can harvest. You've got to walk before you can run. Four of you are awake this morning. First you build the forms, then you pour the concrete. Get that mixed up, it makes the job a lot harder. It's important to put first things first. You don't want to put the cart before the horse. Well, sadly, oftentimes that's what we do in prayer. We put the cart before the horse. This morning as we continue this master class on prayer taught Certainly not by myself, but by Jesus. We're going to see the importance of putting first things first. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. His chief concern in teaching us how to pray is not so that we can get what we want, but so that we can be who God wants us to be. That this is true is seen in what Jesus has us pray for and in what order these requests come. Jesus gives us here in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, a model for prayer. A prayer that should serve for us as a kind of a guide, a, a kind of a general template for our own prayers. That we would pray in generally the same fashion and after generally the same form that Jesus models for us here. And in this prayer, he makes six petitions or requests throughout the prayer. The first three petitions or requests all deal with God's glory. The last three then deal with our needs. Jesus is teaching us that prayer is, in part, a reshaping and a reordering of our own individual priorities in accord with God's priorities. Just as a bit later in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is where where we find the Lord's Prayer, it's in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will teach us how to live by the right priorities. Look with me, you're already in Matthew 6, look with me at verse 31. Matthew 6, 31. Do not worry then, Jesus says, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, but seek 
first. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus there is teaching us to put first things first. To seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness over these other things. To put first things first. Here in this model prayer, just a few verses earlier, Jesus is teaching us how to pray according to these same priorities. Putting first things first. Seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first, even in the way we pray, in the way we approach God through prayer. So let me read for us again. I know we've recited it together, but you can never say it too often. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Let me read for you the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, your name is great, and you are great, and deserving of all honor, respect, worship, and praise. We come before you again declaring these things to be true about you, because we know that our hearts need to be aligned under you. We are rebels at heart. We would be king over all. If left to ourselves, but by your grace, you have revealed our sins to us. You have shown us our errors and you have graciously welcomed us unto yourself through your son and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. So Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to put first things first, even in our prayer life. As tempted as we are to run to you and to to bring a whole list of Temporal concerns and needs, those are legitimate. But Lord, help us to put them in the right order. And so order our hearts rightly before you. Putting you first, seeking you first, your kingdom and your righteousness. And trusting that you will provide all of our needs. So, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at verse 10 this morning from Matthew 6. In teaching us how to pray, Jesus teaches us three requests that help us to align our priorities with God's priorities. Three requests that help us to align our own priorities in life with God's priorities. First of all, we see that Jesus teaches us to begin our prayer with a request that God's name would be hallowed. Praying for God's name to be hallowed. 
This comes, of course, in verse 9, and we saw this initially last week. Jesus' first instruction is for us to pray that God's name would be honored and glorified. And as we looked at this opening prayer last week, we saw that this request revealed some very vital truths. Opening our prayer and calling on God as our Father reminds us that we share an intimate relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God that wasn't possible before Jesus came to die for us. We were enemies of God. We were on the outs with God. We were separated from God. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, And the glorious offer of the gospel through faith in Jesus alone, we are brought near to God. So near that we can call on him now as father. Something that was unheard of. Something that was remarkable and controversial and even scandalous. But that is what Jesus teaches us to do. As Christians, we can now call on God as our father. We have an in. Isn't it good to have an in? To have access? To receive special privileges? That's what we have as Christians with God. We have an in. We receive special privileges from Him. We have welcomed access to God, not merely as servants or slaves or subjects, but as sons. The story of the prodigal son is somewhat misnamed. It's really the story of the gracious father. The father who scans the horizon looking for the return and longing for the return of his wandering son. And as soon as the son is in sight, the father runs to meet him, throws his arms around his son and kisses him and orders the best robe to be brought and put upon his son, and a ring placed upon his hand, and sandals put upon his feet, and to have the fattened calf prepared, for there was going to be a great feast of celebration. Why? Because this son, who he thought was dead, has come to life again. He was lost, but now he's been found, and there's reason to celebrate. As Christians... This is how God welcomes us into his presence, through prayer. As a loving father who rejoices at the sight of his son. So often we think God really doesn't want to hear from us. He's kind of tired of us, bored with us, frustrated with us, disappointed in us, angry with us. But that is not what the gospel teaches. That's the lie of Satan. To keep you from the Father. Through faith in Jesus Christ, all our sin has been taken away and paid for through Jesus at his cross. Now God welcomes us into his presence, not as slaves, not as servants, not as subjects, but as sons and daughters in Christ. And so we can call on him as Father. So it's an intimate relationship. But we also saw last week that our relationship to God is also a transcendent relationship. For our God is not just our Father, but He is our Father who is in heaven. And this provides the needed balance so that our familiarity with God as our Father does not become flippancy with God. 
R.C. Sproul reminds us that we come to the presence of God with boldness, but never in arrogance. Our Father is the great God over all the earth and deserving of our highest respect and honor, even as He is our Father. And then we saw that we are to pray, Hallowed be thy name. And as we saw last week, that's not just a statement of fact that God's name is holy, though that's true. But rather, it's a petition that God's name would be hallowed or treated as holy. This is the first of six petitions in this model prayer. That God's name would be treated as holy. That it would be honored. That it would be revered. That it would be treated as special. And that it would be treated so first in our own hearts and lives and by our own lips... And then that God's name would be hallowed in our homes and in our church and in our community, in our state, our nation, and all over the world. That's the Christian's great prayer and concern and burden. That God's name would be given the honor and dignity and reverence that it deserves. That the nations would hallow God's name and see Him as He truly is. So as Jesus teaches us to pray, the first petition he makes is that God's name would be hallowed. And this, beloved, is to be our priority prayer. That God's name would be honored by every man, woman, boy, and girl. This is to be our priority prayer because this is God's priority for his own name. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? So goes the catechism. That's the purpose for which the world was created, that God's name would be honored. That's the whole purpose of the world. What's the purpose of your life? Why am I here? These are big questions. The Bible gives a big answer. That God would be honored and glorified. That his name would be revered and worshipped by all. And that's where all things are headed. If that's God's priority, it ought to be our priority as well. Malachi 1.11 says, From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Everywhere on earth, my name is going to be great. That's where all things are headed. That is God's priority. That is what God's doing in the world. What on earth is God doing in this world? That's what God's doing in this world. He's making a great name for himself because his name is great. And as that's God's top priority, the Christian responds in kind and makes it their top priority. Even in prayer. God is ultimately going to answer this prayer totally and completely. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My name will be great among the nations. You better believe it's going to happen. And until that day, we as Christians pray. Indeed, Lord. Hallowed be your name. 
and start that hallowing in my heart first. And with my lips first. And with my life first. Putting this at the top of our prayer list helps us to conform our priorities with the Lord's priorities so that they match up and mesh. It helps us to grow in valuing what God values. Above all else, God's top priority is that His name be hallowed, honored, and glorified among all. Is God's top priority your chief concern? If not, begin to pray as our Lord taught us, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name in my heart. Hallowed be your name in my life. Hallowed be your name with my lips. Hallowed be your name in my home. Hallowed be your name in our church, in our community, and in our world. You know, to pray for the spread of the gospel in the world is to pray, hallowed be your name. To pray for missionaries and missions is to pray, hallowed be your name. To pray for evangelism and outreach and unbelievers to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to honor God is to pray, hallowed be your name. So let's make God's top priority our chief concern and express that in prayer. So praying for God's name to be hallowed. Secondly, Jesus teaches us that we ought to pray for God's kingdom to come. Praying for God's kingdom to come. Now this comes in verse 10. The second petition. This is the second. The first petition is hallowed be your name. The second petition is your kingdom come. Now what is God's kingdom that we're praying for would come? God's kingdom is God's rule over all things. And there are different aspects to this. Now, obviously, there's a sense in which God already rules and reigns over all things, right? God is sovereign, and that means He is both all-powerful and in total control over all things. So in that ultimate sense, God is already Ruling and reigning. And he always has been, right? Psalm 103.19 states this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Does that sound like he's in control? Yeah. He's established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty, his power, his might rules over all. 
And we also know that God has installed Jesus on the throne at his right hand. So that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is ruling and reigning. At the place of God's honor, power, and authority. At God's right hand. So the ascension of Jesus to heaven, after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven, and that was his coronation and his investiture at God's right hand. So that Jesus is even now ruling and reigning over all. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, listen to what it says there. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now that is a comprehensive statement of rule and sovereignty that is conferred on Jesus Christ the risen Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, even right now. And yet, despite the fact that God's throne is in the heavens and that His sovereignty rules over all, and despite the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is far above all rule and authority, despite these things being true, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a rebellion going on. There's a rebellion against God's rule, against God's law, against God's word, against God's son. There's a rebellion going on, isn't there? It's even going on in our own hearts. Even as Christians. We're still struggling in this rebellion. Yes, we are children of the King. Yes, we are welcomed sons and daughters. And yet there's a little bit in us, or maybe a little more than a little bit, still wants to do our own thing. Have it our own way. Hallow our own name. Pray for the coming of our own kingdom and rule. There's a rebellion going on. The world is in rebellion to God, its creator. And in rebellion to Jesus as its only redeemer and savior of mankind. The world is in rebellion, hostile rebellion. A rebellion led by Satan. A rebellion supported by a corrupt world system that has been set up in opposition to God. A rebellion aided and abetted by mankind's sin nature and fallen fleshliness. So while God rules and reigns with Jesus Christ at His right hand, Over all things, the world rages on in stubborn rebellion against God's rule. 
That's the world we're living in. That's the reality of the way things are right now. Psalm 2. Turn there with me. Psalm 2. Wonderful psalm of Messiah's kingship. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? What are they devising? Well, here it comes. Verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who's that? That's the Lord's king. That's the one who's seated at His right hand. It's the Lord Jesus Christ saying, verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They've bound us up. They've, They've caused us to not be as free as we would be otherwise. All he wants to do is bind us and and steal what's good and right from us. Let's tear the fetters apart. Let's break these chains and be truly free of his rule. That's the way things are right now. It's the way nations are led. It's the way individuals think and believe and live. But the Lord's rule is such that it in no way is threatened by this uprising and rebellion as Psalm 2 continues. Look at verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's like a toddler coming at you. You know, fists of fury, and you just put your hand on their head. They can't do anything. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them because they're powerless. They think their rebellion is going to amount to something. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You can do nothing to thwart my plans or my chosen king. The Lord Jesus. Despite this current sinful rebellion, God has promised that one day this state of rebellion will be put down and the final form of God's kingdom and rule will be realized and there will be an end to all sin and all rebellion. Zechariah, speaking of this coming rule, says this, Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one. His name, the only one. There are a lot of people vying for the role of king of the universe. 
And it's not limited to heads of state. (laughs) It's something that is in all of us. But one day the Lord is going to put down this rebellion once and for all. This rule and reign of Christ is one day going to come during the millennial reign of Christ and fully and finally during the eternal state. This coming rule and reign of Christ is described in Revelation 11. I want you to turn there. I know I've got you going several places this morning, but this is too good not to see with your own two eyes. Don't take my word for it. Revelation 11, 15. This is where all things are headed. Revelation eleven fifteen through 17. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? It's from a pretty famous little jingle. This guy named Handel wrote. It's a catchy tune. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Now in what sense had he begun to reign? He's always reigned. In the sense that he has put down all other competition for the throne. He's put down all sin. He's put down all rebellion once and for all. So there's coming a day when God, through his son Jesus Christ, is going to put down this great sinful rebellion that is the world we're living in. And he will establish his kingdom A kingdom which is already here, but not yet in its final form. Already established with Christ as its king, ruling in our hearts, but not yet in its fullest and final realization. The rebellion against Christ the king continues. And so long as it continues, we as Christians pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, he's teaching us to pray for the progressive growth of God's kingdom on earth and for the final consummation of that kingdom. We're praying that God's kingdom would grow and advance through the preaching of the gospel and through the repentance and faith of every rebel who hears its gracious message of forgiveness and reconciliation. Your kingdom come. One heart at a time. So in praying your kingdom come, we're praying for God's kingdom to spread and advance. One life at a time, but we're also praying for the soon coming of the final form of that great kingdom. We're praying for Christ's rule and reign to be increasingly and one day finally perfectly manifest in the world. 
We're praying Revelation eleven fifteen that the kingdom of this world would become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. To pray your kingdom come is to pray what Paul prayed in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Maranatha, our Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. We're living in a rebellious land that needs to be subjugated to your righteous rule. Come, Lord Jesus. Don't you long for the kingdom to be made complete? For sin to be vanquished? For justice and peace to prevail? For tyranny and suffering to end? Don't you long for the glories of heaven and heaven on earth? Then pray, thy kingdom come. Praying for the kingdom to come helps to put our lives, the world, and all things into proper perspective. It gives us the big picture of where all things are headed and helps us to make the coming of the kingdom our greatest desire and our surest hope. So let us pray as the Lord instructs for the coming of the Lord's kingdom. We need to put first things first. Seek first his kingdom. Thirdly and finally, Jesus instructs us to pray for God's will to be done. Your will be done. We're praying for God's will to be done. Now that is something profound to pray for if you think about it. For in praying for God's will to be done, we're placing our will below God's will. We're putting God's will above our will. We're placing what we want below what God wants. And that is right where we should be all the time, isn't it? Trouble is we don't stay there. Our will finds its way back, struggles and claws its way back to the top of the heap and wants to exert itself over God's will. We want what we want to be first and what God wants to be later. Sometime later. I've said it before, but prayer is not so much about, or any, in any way, about bending God's will to ours, but bending our will to God's. And so when we pray, your will be done, we are submitting our will to God's will. And this, of course, was something that Jesus not only taught, but also modeled for us. Of course, we know that moment in the garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. He knows what he's about to do. He knows the excruciating nature of the cross, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. 
he is going to be wrung out completely and given over totally to this task. And Luke twenty two forty one tells us that Jesus withdrew from the other disciples about a stone's throw there in the garden. And he knelt down and he began to pray. And he was saying, Father, notice the language, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is what I would like to see happen. I would, if there's any other way, any other way to accomplish your plan of redemption, Lord, let's put that into effect. I'm all for plan B. If there is one. And yet, not my will be done, but your will be done. And we know that Jesus prayed this in the garden not once, not twice, but three times, straining in prayer so that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And yet at the end of the day, he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And praying for God's will to be done. We're not praying that God would somehow become more sovereign and powerful so that he could accomplish what he wants to accomplish. No way. God is all-powerful. He cannot possibly grow in strength. God is totally sovereign and can't possibly grow in his control over all things. So what are we praying when we pray your will be done? We're praying that God's preceptive will would be done. That his will of precept, his will of commandment, his will of teaching, that God's will as it's revealed in God's word would be done. That people would honor and revere and obey God's word and God's will with their hearts and with their lives. And that that work would begin with us. And it is to submit our wills to God's will. It is to align our wills under God's will. Lord, may your will be done in my life. Lord, help me to love and follow your commandments. Your will be done. Now look with me at this last phrase of verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is teaching us to pray that God's will his will of precept, his preceptive will, would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, his will of command and instruction, is done perfectly in heaven, right? In heaven, what God commands is done. Psalm 103.21 says, Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, talking about the angelic hosts. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. The elect angels of heaven always do what God says. Without exception. They serve him and obey him perfectly. There is a 0% failure rate among the angels when it comes to doing God's will. Right? Among the elect angels. 
This prayer is a request that just as God's will is always done in heaven, so it would be on earth. That there would be a one-to-one correspondence between the way God's will is done in heaven and the way His will is done on earth. So in a sense, we are praying for heaven on earth. As heaven is characterized by perfect obedience to God, so we pray that the earth will be characterized by the same perfect obedience too. And in this way, we are praying for heaven on earth. And it's very similar then to the prayer, Thy kingdom come. Right? Where God's rule is uncontested. And His every command is always followed and obeyed. And this kind of heaven on earth, of course, begins with us. As we pray this, we're praying that the answer to this prayer would begin with us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life as it is in heaven. So all three of these opening petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, can be seen in light of this last phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may your name be treated as holy on earth as it is truly treated in heaven. Lord, may your rule over your kingdom on earth be just as it is in heaven, complete and total. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven with perfect obedience. As this is the reality in heaven, even so, let it become the reality on earth. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus. We know that ultimately the answer to this prayer isn't going to come fully and completely until the Lord Jesus returns. But in praying these three petitions, we are putting first things first. We are praying for honor to God's name, for submission to His rule, and for conformity to His will. And that all of this would be done to the same degree that it is done in heaven. There is nothing more important or more life-changing that you and I can be praying for in our lives. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. On earth. Even as it is in heaven. May the Lord make it so. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Glorify the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts, in our lives, with our lips and our actions in our church, in our family, in our community, and in our world. Maranatha, our Lord, come.
Come, Lord Jesus. Put down the rebellion that's so active in this world and sadly remains so active in our own hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.